Today's reading is from James, uh, chapter 2. We're going from verse 14 through to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and by his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rehab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Wonderfully read, Duncan, thank you. It's a very uplifting verse to read, isn't it? But I'm actually quite excited to talk to you guys about it today because, as I said before, it is my favorite like little nugget of the New Testament if I, if I had to pick one out. Because of it, just James is very blunt, and I do love being blunt. And that does also make it very controversial, though. And because it's very blunt, it's also very easy to misinterpret. But nonetheless, I think it's got some really crucial wisdom here. So before we start, let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, in your spirit you would guide us today, that we would hear your words and be convicted, that we would put these words into action and that we would apply them to our lives to only grow in our faith in you. Amen. So, how can you be sure of your salvation? When I ask that question, you're probably thinking that it's your faith that saves you. And you're right, don't worry about that, because yes, you were saved through faith alone. Oh, do we have the slides going? Sorry. I caught you off guard. (laughs) Oh, no, that's good. We're fine. That that was on me. But how do we know your faith is genuine? What separates genuine Christians from false ones? These questions are a little harder to answer because they make us a lot more uncomfortable. Suddenly, you might be looking at the ceiling fans. They're hard questions because they cut deep. They ask, are you right with God? This is the very center of our faith. Does your faith inform your actions? 
How would you respond if I asked you that question? I know I couldn't claim it did all the time when I asked this question myself. I have also squirmed in those chairs you're sitting in. But James is not afraid to call us out on this. He knows that when our faith and our actions don't match, that we have a real issue. So where does your faith come out? If you claim to have a saving faith, where does it actually come out in your lives? James makes it very clear to us in this passage that real saving faith is one that changes us, it transforms us, it brings about actions. And without those actions, as evidence and as fruit, it's worthless. Our faith should bring about actions in every aspect of our lives. That means every aspect. James is saying, if we praise Christ as Lord, as we did earlier today in, in worship, that we ought to act like it. And if we don't, it brings our belief and even our salvation into question. Because to accept Christ as our savior, we also accept him as our Lord, the one whose will we follow. If we reject or ignore his will for our lives, we're also rejecting his sacrifice for our lives. And that's a heavy start to a sermon. But I do hope it's caught your attention because again, James doesn't beat around the bush. He's direct and I really love him for it. So keep your Bibles open. First, we'll be seeing what James means by saving faith. And this is gonna be pretty much most of the sermons, a big chunk. Then we'll see how James's Old Testament examples show us what those faithful deeds actually look like. And finally, we will apply it to our lives today. So in the first half of the chapter, James calls us to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And here in the second half, he's fleshing, us, fleshing out what that looks like for us. James's opening rhetorical questions frame the core of what he's teaching here. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Now James isn't trying to start a debate and he's not trying to be coy either. The reason he asks the question is to show to us how obvious the answer is, that faith with no deeds is simply no good. Without deeds, faith is just empty words. It's a mask we put on every Sunday. Can such faith save them? Or if I rephrased it a little bit there, is it just faith that saves you? And our instinct is to say yes, but again, James is saying no, an empty faith is not one that saves. James needs us to understand what genuine faith is. It's faith proved by action. He teaches us this so that we would listen to his wisdom, to tame the tongue, to not show favoritism gives us a reason to apply his teachings in the rest of his book because that's how we actually put our faith into action. Because when we see people who claim to be Christian but don't live it out, we ourselves know something's wrong, something's off. We don't pray for them and worry for them without reason. To hammer the point home, I have a handy little statistic. In the last census in 2021, 43.9%, which is pretty close to half, of Australians listed themselves as Christian. It made me think, are half the people we meet at work and at uni or at school, on the street, do they act like Christians? Are they humble and sacrificially loving? Do we think that all people who tick Christian live the, live the way that Christ wants them to? Well, I've got some cynicism to me, so I'd say no. But do we think half of Australians are saved? Again, if I were honest, I don't think so. Our words, what we write on the census, doesn't always reflect what we believe, but our actions, what we actually do day to day, that indicates what we really believe. 
I claimed to love sport, huge mega fan, but you never saw me at a game, you never saw me play, and you never even heard me talk about it, you probably wouldn't believe me. And you may have heard a few scoffs because we do not care too much about sport. <laughs> James provides his own example in a needy Christian a good Frenchman covered earlier today. Being offered words of empathy, but his needs actually weren't being met. Like in my younger days in primary school, I had a friend without any lunch, and you know, I consoled him, but I ate my entire sandwich because that was my sandwich. My consoling did him no good, and what's worse, I actively had the means to help him. I had something to share, but I didn't. I didn't put my words into action. My actions spoke louder than my words, saying, I was just being nice. I had no intention on actually sharing my sandwich. I just wanted the sentiment of kindness. Sentiment does no good for a hungry person. Neither does sentiment do any good for a hungry soul. If we don't put our faith into action, if we don't pray, we don't help the needy, we don't read our Bibles, we never try to live as Christ did, do we truly believe? As James points out in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It leaves us just as dead to sin as we were before and just as empty without that Jesus-sized hole in our heart filled. So which is it? Is it faith or is it deeds? James clears this up perfectly and very well in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. This is my favorite verse in the whole book, because he stops, he sits us down, and he says, I will show you. You will see my faith through what I do. And in saying so, he's encouraging us to do the same. James is showing us, are they not two separate camps? It's not oil and water with one on the top or one on the bottom, or rather, it's a cordial mixture. Oh, snap, I got to turn the page. You know, pure cordial and water. They're good separately, but they're still lacking in substance. Oh. <laughs> Deeds pack a punch. They're sweet, but it's not very refreshing. Oh. You can't drink this all day. Hmm. Faith is refreshing. It's dependable, but with nothing else, it becomes tasteless and empty. You put them together. Well measured me. Okay. They actually work together. They come together, and they become a complete whole. And once you put them together, you're not going to be separating them again. Much better, actually. Ah, little way to stay hydrated. Just so is it with works and deeds. And they both contribute to the whole and complete Christian life. James doesn't say, my deeds have produced my faith, or my deeds have made me righteous. The focus here is still on faith, but it's one that is transformative and seen through one's deeds. This is the difference between knowing of God and trusting in God, that our faith impacts who we are and how we act. Simply put, faith is seen through deeds. The evidence of faith is deeds. Look at the paralyzed man in Mark chapter two. The guy's friends lugged him up onto and then proceeded to break through the roof just to see Jesus. And in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their faith in their actions and thus forgives the man's sins. So why is James stressing this point so much? 
because he knows full well that it is only genuine faith that saves us. He knows that a life that isn't transformed is actually condemned, and he doesn't pull his punches in telling us this. Verse 19, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's a very awesome mic drop moment in there. Even demons claim to believe in God. So our claim of that fact isn't enough. Our theology doesn't save us because demons have great theology. But all the same, they are terrified. They, they shudder at the thought of judgment. We see this example in action as well, in Matthew 8, 28 to 29, where two demon-possessed men recognize Jesus as the Son of God, but they also recognize they're still to be judged, just as we ourselves can be if we don't live out our faith. James recognizes the danger in not having genuine faith when we claim or even believe we do. James is drawing us to reflect on our own faith. Do I act it out? Has it transformed my life? Or do I simply say I'm a Christian because that's how I was raised? Do I say it just to ignore my guilt, make me feel better about death? (laughs) True faith is not sentimentality, but it is seen day to day. It is seen in how we act and what we do. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That's verse 24, and when you can hear it, it can kind of startle you, even get you a little angry. You know, how dare James suggest that faith is not what saves us? But we have to recognize this verse for what it is. It doesn't bring faith down, it lifts it up. It's saying that faith is not defined as your empty words or your empty belief. It's a true lived out trust and obedience to Christ as Lord. And the weight or bluntness of James' message can lead us to misinterpret or even disregard James's wisdom. And that's a tragedy because there aren't two separate views about what faith is, but only one unified picture. Paul is famous for preaching that we are saved by faith alone. In Ephesians, for it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a verse we all love because despite our brokenness, God still saves us. Then put James's passage next to that one, and do you think Paul would agree? You think Paul would be all for what James is saying there? It's very easy to point out the differences. I'll do it for you. On one side, faith alone, not by works. On the other side, not faith alone, you need works. It's very easy to think that these two verses contradict each other. But we know this is God's word. This isn't some grudge match between Paul and James saying who's right. These two different men are being led by the same spirit to teach about the same way of salvation. So we need to look beyond the surface level. In their letters, both apostles address key issues or misconceptions about faith. Paul preaches, you are not saved by your deeds, but through faith, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot rely on our own actions to make us right with God. James is saying, you are not saved without deeds, because they are the fruit of faith, the evidence of it. James always talks about the importance of deeds in the context of faith. We are still saved by faith, but our faith and our actions have to match. It's a cordial from before, both ingredients are needed here. Paul and James don't contradict each other, but rather they point to the same conclusion from two different vantage points, that genuine faith is the only way to be saved. After after reading Paul's words in Ephesians, we can be rather blasé about sin and repentance because we're saved through faith. It's nothing to do with our works, it doesn't really matter what I do. 
James sees this and he speaks out against it. He's saying, no, you need a transformative faith. Stop using your faith as a get out of jail free card, but live it out. Paul himself also says this in Romans chapter six, verses one to four. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul shows that faith gives us the opportunity to live a new life under Christ. The old life is left behind. The faith we show changes not only what we do, but who we are as people. Simply put, the Bible says that if you think that your belief of God's existence is enough, you are wrong. Live with Christ as Lord. Change your ways to follow his teachings. And if you believe through your own effort, you've made yourself righteous by your actions, you are wrong. Have faith in Christ's sacrifice for your life. Only he makes the broken righteous. Regardless of which side you may fall on, the solution is actually beautifully the same. Turn to Christ and trust in him. Live a life where your faith shapes what you do. But what does that look like? What does living a faithful life look like? Well, James points to the Old Testament to give us some examples. First, he uses Abraham. Great little picture there. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is what James points to as proof of his faith in God's promises. And it's very important to remember the context of the promises here. God has promised Abraham that he will be the father of many nations and that through his descendants, the whole world is going to be blessed. He's then promised that his wife would bear him a son in her old age, and she does, Isaac, the child through which those promises would be fulfilled. God then commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which seems a little counterproductive, but Abraham still has faith and he is willing. Quick spoilers, Isaac isn't actually sacrificed. And through his line, through his descendants, Jesus is born. And through Jesus, the whole world is blessed. The promise is fulfilled. Abraham was willing to sacrifice everything for God because he had faith that God would fulfill his promises. He truly believed that what God had promised him was worth far more than anything else the world could offer. And he was ready to act on it, to be obedient to God. In the same way, transform our own lives, we must have full faith in the promises of God. And we even have greater promises than Abraham did. We have been promised eternal life and a place at God's table as a part of his family. James's repeated use of you see also shows that we should be able to see someone's faith by how they live, as he said in earlier verses. As we can see Abraham's obedience to sacrifice Isaac, we can see his faith to God, and so we can see how he is made righteous. Again, this draws us to personal reflection. Can I see my faith in how I act? Can others? Do we avoid acting like Christians, especially around those who don't believe? Abraham shows us that true faith in God is complete obedience to him, and it can and should be seen through our actions. James doesn't just use Abraham's example, he also uses Rahab, which is pretty much the opposite of Abraham, if you could pick one. Back in the book of Joshua, Rahab hides the Jewish spies infiltrating Jericho, even sending the city's guards the other way, because she had heard of the great and mighty deeds of the God of Israel, and knew that he was the one true God. 
She leaves her own people to join God's people. She doesn't offer the spies a good luck, hope it goes well with you guys, please don't break my house when you come into the city, and then letting the city guards in. No, she instead ensures her, the guards' safety, no, spy safety, sorry, securing her safety with Israel, not with Jericho. James uses Rahab to show how important it is to leave our old life behind as we seek to live out a new life under Christ. It's the importance of repentance. Rahab knew she couldn't sit on the fence. She was either all in with Israel or all in with Jericho, just as we have to be all in with Christ if we're Christians. It's in the name, after all. We can't have it both ways. We can't pick and choose what we're going to repent from. If we are genuine in turning to Christ, we must repent of all our sins, not just the ones that are easy to turn from. Rahab shows us that turning to God, to have faith in him, it means surrendering our lives to him completely, turning away from our past sins to instead live as he commands. Just as Rahab left her people Jericho to join God's people Israel, we are no longer one with this world, but rather we're citizens of heaven. Now, we're almost finished, but James leaves us with a final warning in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Again, there is no hope in a dead faith. So you must avoid the pitfalls the devil leaves for us. And one of the easiest pitfalls to fall into is one of legalism. To focus too much on the deeds themselves, seeking the minimum requirement of deeds to fulfill to get us into heaven. This can leave us feeling either rather accomplished or inadequate, you know, overconfident that we've got it, we've, we're in, or absolutely hopeless because we know that we're not enough. But this is a flawed way of thinking. We've lost sight of what makes those deeds meaningful. It's our faith. Without faith, deeds are dead and meaningless, just as faith is dead without deeds. They both contribute to the whole, separate, they do us no good. And if we find ourselves slipping into this legalistic view, that's where Paul's teaching comes in. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, this is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our faith shouldn't be in our works themselves, thinking that that makes our faith genuine but rather our faith must be in Christ our Lord, that through his grace we've been born again into eternal life. So how do we actually apply this then? James writes this message that we would look inward, that we would ask those tough questions. Do I live out my faith? Is my faith genuine? Does my faith come out? Can others see my faith by how I act? Now, if we're not very favorable with those questions, James doesn't want us to wallow in self-pity and keep living that same life, but he wants us to turn to Christ. He wants us to strive to live a faithful life, one that can be seen in our actions. And we're flawed, we know we will make mistakes, we're broken humans, but we must continually turn to Christ, just as Abraham did and as Rahab did. And as a church, we can lean on each other we can encourage one another, refresh ourselves with fellowship, and keep each other accountable. God has given us a church for a good reason. It is such a great tool to push each other forward in our faithful walk. So I end this sermon with this challenge. Is your faith genuine? Do you live it out? If not, I encourage you to bring these things before God, to pray, draw close to him, read the Bible. 
I know I myself was challenged with areas of my life while I was writing this sermon. And it sounds pretty mean when what I'm about to say, but I hope we would all be challenged today, that the Spirit convicts us and calls us out where he needs to. It could be a sin we're stuck in or an error of our life that we've closed off from God. Whatever it is, I want you to know that God isn't just pushing you down for that, but he wants you to draw to him, to pray to him. He is your loving father. He wants us to live out our faith in action. Lord, I, I pray that these words would ring true, that we would seek to live out our faith in you fully. It would not just be a word we say or a thing we label ourselves with, but a life that we live out for you excited for your son to come back home and to send us up with him into a new creation. Amen.